From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After going toe-to-toe with mighty Alabama for 60 minutes last weekend, the Gators may not have claimed victory, but they certainly earned the respect of everyone who was in attendance and watching around the college football world. But now that they have that attention, the question is if they'll continue to bring the pain moving forward through the SEC. On today's show, we'll chat with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry about what we learned about this team against the Crimson Tide, the lopsided state of the Florida-Tennessee rivalry, Katie Ledecky's surprising role with the Gator swimming program, and their most memorable game environments in the PAT. Then, redshirt freshman punter Jeremy Crosshaw joins us to discuss his journey from Australian rules football to the American gridiron on the other side of the globe, along with some of the best fish-out-of-water moments he's experienced along the way. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. I guess I would start today's roundtable by asking the question, what did we learn about the Gators after their performance against Alabama? I think the first thing is that the gap between Alabama and Florida is as small as it's been since really, you know, the Gators' last win in the series, the 2008 SEC Championship game when when Florida won. And we all know what happened the next year. Alabama won, and then Nick Saban's Army took over the SEC in the country and has uh, dominated ever since. And if you look back at Florida's games over that span against Alabama, they've been ugly. They've lost by as many as 38 and by as few, I think, as 14 until last year, the SEC championship game. They lost by six, but if you watch that game, they were always kind of two scores down, so they get within one. Saturday was different. Final three quarters, Florida dominated that that game. It was the offensive and defensive lines that did it. A solid play from Emory Jones. Uh, too many mental errors, uh, too many calls to mistakes. Obviously, the two that everybody's talking about is the missed extra point by Chris Howard and the communication issues on the two point conversion. Uh, but I think for me, Adam, you know, I, I figured it was going to be a decent game if nothing else, just because of home field advantage. If I'm sitting there, it's 21 to three. I'm like everybody else. I'm like, where's this going? You know, this could be just another, uh, another butt kicking by Bama and the Gators showed me something by hanging in there and coming back. And I think, it just opens some possibilities now for the rest of the season. Certainly, it earned them some respect nationally. But I also think that, you know, this team, if they needed anything to believe in, they have it now. You know, they could do some special things this year and maybe get a rematch against Alabama. But a lot of what-ifs right now. But that's really the big takeaway for me, Adam. I think um, what we learned – this team has developed in the last uh, few months uh, since last season relative to what it can accomplish on the lines of scrimmage. Um, when you rush uh, for 246 yards against Alabama, 
Wow. And outrushed them 246 to 91. That's the most yards put up on the ground against an Alabama team in seven years. Mm. So, uh, and you hold them to 91 yards. You now have uh, an ability to, to claim an identity, I think. Um, this is a running football team. And you just ran for 246 yards without a guy who's averaging 25 yards a carry, which of course we're talking about Anthony Richardson. So Florida has, has in essence, since last year when they led the nation in passing, now I believe they're second in the nation in rushing, um, uh, has undergone something of a transition relative to physicality and what have you. And that's a, tra- that's a testament to the coaches on the, on the who, John Hevesy on the, on the uh, on the offensive line and those defensive coaches on the other side of the ball that they were that they're able to kind of um, change what the Gators have done and get a little more brute force going. I mean, uh, Scott said uh, Scott mentioned Emory Jones. Um, he had, I believe, seventy six yards rushing in that game. Um, but I mean, you're talking about drives of seventy five, three drives of at least well over seventy five yards and a ninety nine yard touchdown drive against the Alabama Crimson Tide. You know that in Tuscaloosa this week, that 99-yard drive has dominated conversations in their in their defensive meeting rooms. Again, that's another testament to Florida. So you're going to build on that. Uh, would you, you want to be a better passing team? Yes, Dan Mullen would like to throw the ball better. Uh, Emory Jones was far from perfect passing the ball, but the reason they were in the game in the fourth quarter, the reason it was a one possession game for basically most of the second half was because of what Emory Jones was able to do with that offense. And that running game was part of it was a big, was the main part of it. And he was a huge part of that as a trigger man in that option and, and finding ways to manifest uh, uh, runs of Naquan Wright came off the bench. I mean, he had a, on that one ninety-nine yard drive. I mean, it was it was almost a Naquan Wright drive. It was, mm-hmm. it, I'd say, it was a Naquan Wright Emory Emory Jones uh, drive. Um, so uh, good for them. Build on that, but uh, yes, you want to be able to. Dan Mullen certainly wants to be able to have some more explosive plays in the passing game than showed up. Uh, the most explosive ones the other day were, I think, were pass interference calls down the middle of the field. They need to get more from, uh, from from Jacob Copeland and from Xavier Henderson and um, a bunch of those guys on the outside. But it's something to be encouraged about. But also, you don't want to take too – you don't want to relish too much in losing. Uh, it was a great atmosphere, and that was a huge takeaway. People walked away. These national writers that are here said, man, college football is back. That was an amazing night. Alabama players said that. Florida's players who hadn't seen the swamp at its best said that. Um but yeah, you want to just say, hey, you want to leave that game thinking missed opportunities more than you say, hey, uh, nobody was talking about moral victories. Gators probably felt OK after the game, but you they didn't feel OK Monday when they came back to practice. I think they they'd heard enough about um, the little things that they could have done, pass interference plays, the missed extra point, um, uh, the miscommunication on the two point conversion kind of things that they left them kicking themselves. And that's good. Uh, because they were that close to um, sending that game into overtime. You know, we, we've talked so much about one of the things Florida had to get better at to be at this level of the, the top teams. It had to be up front. And, you know, we saw that. That was obviously very evident when you look at what the offensive line, the defensive line did respectively. Um, where do we think that came from? Is, is this just further development 
as Dan Mullen and his staff have gotten, you know, further entrenched with these classes? Is it is it new blood coming in? What what do we make of the the performances up front? Because that, you know, obviously that that was the biggest difference everybody could see. Well, I think it's a combination of all of the above, Adam. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of new faces on the offensive line this year, but the ones who are, you know, Ethan White being a regular now, being healthy, uh, Kingsley Egwakon, obviously at center. I think it goes back to more than coaching, uh, anything development. You know, they talked a lot um, this week, really, uh, about that, about John Hevesy's ability to develop players. And Dan Mullen said that he is sort of like fine wine. He gets better with age when he deals with players. And what that what he meant by that was a lot of players get to Florida and under Hevesy and, you know, he, he's not a uh, Mr. Sweetheart kind of coach to deal with. He's very technical in his teaching, and he, he, he's pretty hard on the guys, and he has to break a lot of them down. After uh, practice last night, I was walking back with Kingsley Ekipon, and he was even saying that, you know, when he first got here, he got humbled uh, by Hevesy. Uh, he thought he was better than he was, and he had to get into the system, buy into it, and – develop as a player, uh, and I think you're seeing some of that. Gene DeLance is another guy, and he said the same thing. You know, he comes in from Texas as a transfer. Hevesy had coached or uh, had recruited him while they were at Mississippi State. He decided to go to Texas. Then when it didn't work out there, he wanted a fresh start, came over to Florida, and he had to kind of rebuild himself uh, and re- and develop into the kind of player that they wanted, and now he leads a team with tw- 28 consecutive starts, and a lot of people are saying Gene DeLance is the most improved player on the team. Uh, so I think it's a lot of coaching, defensive line. You know, it's a veteran group, but they brought in the Quan Newkirk. They brought in uh, Anthony Valentino. Those are those aren't freshmen. Those are grad grad transfers who have Power Five conference experience. So when you add that kind of players to Zach Carter, a young guy, Jervon Dexter, Chris Bogle. Brian Cox Jr., then suddenly you get a more experienced and really probably as good of a defensive line as Florida's had, you know, in three or four years. And uh, they showed that against Alabama, and so did the offensive line. I think more people really are probably talking about the offensive line's performance more, Adam, because we just you just don't see Alabama get pushed around like Chris right. was talking earlier. 246 yards rushing. Uh, just doesn't happen. You can probably count in your hand one time or uh, one hand how many times that happened under Nick Saban. I mean, just does not happen. And you look at the Florida's line, uh, there was no position group that got beat up more last year than the offensive line. And, and yet it was a totally different request of them. They were a pass blocking unit last year. And quite frankly, I thought they did really well in that. They only gave up, I don't know, a handful of sacks. They weren't asked to go out there and do the tough run blocking. This year, they've been asked to do the dirty stuff, do the dirty work down there in the run game. And guess what? They're producing. So it shows you coaching, development, and really the adaptability of these guys up front. They're willing to to go both ways, and it's worked, it's worked out for Florida. You know, another thing that we saw, which I think was a big question mark coming into the year, was good production out of the tight ends. And obviously, you lose someone like Kyle Pitts, who – was the highest tight end ever drafted. There's going to be a drop-off. And through the first couple of weeks, we didn't see quite as much 
from Zipper and from Gamble. Um, and, and we talked about this, guys, in the last couple weeks, the idea that Florida wasn't going to necessarily show a lot of its hand against USF and FAU. But once we saw I, what we have to believe is pretty much the full menu uh, against Alabama, there's there's been some development of the tight ends as well, and, and they, they were weapons in that game. You know, you knew that they had some talent there behind Pitts last year. Because when Pitts, remember when Pitts went down against Georgia, he missed a few games, mm-hmm. and both Kamori Gamble and Keon Zipper uh, came in and, and produced some. And it, it was going to look different this year. And then, of course, they go out in the first two games, and guess what? The tight ends don't catch a pass, and everybody's like, "Oh boy, that was a big drop off." <laughs> but what it did, what it was, and Gamble last, you know, Gamble earlier this week, you know, when that was suggested to him. He kind of played that off that they were holding back. That's right. But I think I think Dan Mullen, uh, he knew that. Okay, we're playing Alabama. I'm going to need my full uh, arsenal here. And guess what? That first drive, I think he went to gamble like three times, and it really helped Florida move the ball on that opening drive. And uh, right away, their tight ends were a big factor. They ended up with nine catches for 83 yards in that game. And uh, both guys got involved, uh, Zipper and Gamble. And, uh, again, it, it's something that we've talked about. Dan Mullen talks about the tight ends have always been an integral part of his offensive scheme. Uh, it was showcased in 2020 because you had a generational talent in Kyle Pitts. But I think they have full confidence in Kamori Gamble, uh, Keon Zipper. You got Nick Elksis behind them. Jonathan Oves on the roster. So they have – they have good talent there, good depth, and the tight ends will continue to be a part of the offense, uh, Adam. Uh, I think still going back to their earlier point, right now this is still more of a running team, but tight ends, uh, when they when they decide to pass, change up, change up the plan, look for those guys to be involved. You mentioned earlier that you know now there's uh, nationally a lot of talk about Florida and, and the Gators earned a lot of respect. As we know, uh, that can be a week-to-week thing, right? So if you don't follow up a good performance with a strong performance, then they'll say, oh, well, they were overrated, et cetera. So you'll end up in all those next-day columns about, oh, we thought we knew this about them, but we were wrong. Um, ultimately, we you know we learned a lot about the Gators, but if it doesn't show up against Tennessee in the Swamp on Saturday night, then maybe it's for naught, right? So let's talk about the matchup with the Volunteers. Florida heavily favored in this game. Um, what do we think about the matchup? What are we expecting to see on Saturday night? Well, they've won, what's the number, 15 out of 16 now? I mean, I'm, yeah. I, if, if it's happened so often, I'm losing track. I mean, <laughs> 15 I, uh, out of 16. Yeah, I mean, uh, and a lot of those games haven't been haven't been close. Um, I mean, I, I was weaned uh, as a beat writer on this. Ten, Tennessee-Florida was not only the biggest game in the Southeastern Conference every year, it was one of the 10 biggest national games every year, obviously. And, uh, 1990 going back uh, 45 to three demolition job that uh, uh, Florida took up there in Knoxville um, <laughs> and still ended up with the best record in the SEC that year because Tennessee went out the next weekend and lost in a nine, six shootout against Alabama <laughs> um, and then lost another game along the road. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken or had a tie, I believe tied Auburn, I think anyway, um, uh, Florida obviously owned the series. Then it, there was some back and forth in the in the lat in the latter stages of the games that bridged the, the 90s and the early aughts. But um, Urban Meyer came in and started a run. And the only hiccup has been the 
think the 2016 season, uh, Jim McElwain lost up there in a, in a game, but uh, the Gators still ended up winning the SEC East that year, uh, believe it or not, uh, that, that year. So, so hey, Tennessee is under transition. Josh mm-hmm. Heupel went from UCF. Uh, he's up there trying to run a little bit of fast break stuff. Um, beat Bowling Green to open the season. Beat uh, Tennessee Tech last week, I think, 56 nothing. Sandwich between those two games was a home loss to Pitt, which isn't a very good team, frankly. Uh, uh, so Florida is going to be expected to win this game, probably win it handily. Now, having said all that, it's all about carryover. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to you take those good things from last week and, and – you know, you're not right. You're not, you're not riding. Don't, 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 there shouldn't be too much element of, of overconfidence com- coming off a loss like that, but you ought to be able to, to, if you can push around Alabama and both sides of the ball, you ought to be able to push around Tennessee in your home field. Um, it's, uh, it would be nice, really, really nice. If the, if what we saw last week and Dan Mullen mentioned this, the players have mentioned this, if what we saw from the environment, which was lit, as they say these days, <laughs> can carry over, it's supposed to be lit against Alabama. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, you guys remember, it used to be lit every week. All right. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was it was better for the for the bigger games when Florida State rolled in, when Tennessee rolled in, when some of those good LSU teams uh, or Auburn teams rolled in here. But um, it needs to that needs to start being a standard that the, you know, the, there's a swamp standard as it is. The, the, the students have done their job in the first two games, obviously getting it. They're actually getting in there before the game starts, which was a problem for a, f- a few years. Uh, but now come in, come in and make Tennessee, um, uh, the Tennessee Florida environment like it was and, and, and play off that. If, if, if you're the Gators build on that, um, start, start building on the passing game a little bit, start finding who your playmakers are, on the outside and Dan Mullen seemed suggested that Anthony Richardson could, could be in the game this week. Um, we'll, we'll see, we'll see if that happens. I, I maybe, maybe he's, maybe they rest him one more. I don't, I don't know that he was cleared. They say to go, but he wouldn't have been able to run around like the answer, like the answer, Anthony Richardson we saw the first two weeks. So um, this is an important game as, as, and I think to quote Dan Mullen, as big as last game was, uh, this game's bigger because it's an SEC East game. Now you've lost a game. Um, uh, a lot of Steve Spurrier teams won the league, uh, losing a game against a Western uh, Western Division opponent. Um, there's a Gators are own one in the league, so you know you, you get you got to start stockpiling wins on the other side of the ball. Excuse me, on the other side of the one loss column. Uh, Tennessee's the first opponent on that late, and it's it's important to beat them and get the season off. Get the uh, division season off to a to a to a victorious start yeah this is exactly the kind of game that great teams good teams go out and win and don't have a, a drop off uh you know after saturday's lost alabama the first thing really about dan mullen said in his post-game presser was he was going to be really interested to see how they come back on monday at practice and and that was a message to his team like okay guys you know we we hung with alabama but guess what we didn't win Mm-hmm. And now if you want to see him again, you need to get back to work and take care of your business. Uh, that's what really good teams do. And uh, I don't know who Alabama plays this week, but I'm almost going to guarantee you that whoever they play, they're going to play really well against. That's just what Alabama does. I think it's Southern Miss. I wouldn't want to be Southern Miss. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to be Southern Miss either, but 
that's what Saban does. That's why Alabama has been great for so long. And that's what Florida has to do and Mullen has to do to get to that point. And I think uh, that's his message this week. And, you know, Tennessee, you're looking at a team that started the season with Joe Milton, the third at quarterback to transfer from Michigan. Uh, he gets hurt. So they're going with uh, what, Hendon Hooker from Virginia Tech, uh, went back to Bailey some. Uh, Chris mentioned earlier they were playing high tempo, kind of fast break football. They want to – that's their advantage, you know, when you're – when you're kind of uh, lacking maybe some key talent in spots, you play up tempos that kind of negate some things uh, for your, in terms or even some things out against the defense. So Florida's aware of that. Um, you know, Josh Heupel, Florida fans are pretty familiar with him because he was at UCF for a while, and they kind of know what he did down there after Scott Frost. And uh, he gets the Tennessee job, and it's just a – Everything you guys talked about, I remember this as a rivalry that was one of the top five in the country, and now it's kind of there. It's it's just those days are over. As a matter of fact, I can remember when I first came into this job in 2010, there would always be questions, you know, each week of the coaches, Tennessee-Florida rivalry, what it's like. And guess what? This week, nobody – this young generation, they don't even remember it now. The players on both teams – they don't remember Peyton Manning and Danny Warfel. They don't remember Rex Grossman in 2001, that, you know, September 11th game that had to get rescheduled. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't know any of that stuff. So They don't remember T. Martin and the five turnovers in Knoxville the year that Tennessee won the national championship in the first overtime game in Florida history in 1998. I was, yeah. I, was in a, I was in a press box that night when Collins Cooper missed that field goal literally you could feel the stadium shake. The only other time I felt that way in a stadium was at Texas a &M, So, Well, they'll need that kind of atmosphere at the Swamp on Saturday. I think that will say a lot uh, what how the game's going and how Florida fans look at this team coming off that Alabama performance. I mean, that place is still rocking against, against Tennessee in a game that you mentioned, Adam, that the Gators are heavily favored. If it's still rocking like that, people are – excited about this team and I kind of think they should be right now I think they have some great opportunities ahead of them yes we'll see if, if Florida can uh, can hold up obviously the expectation level has uh, has risen here and we'll see if they can in turn rise to that challenge uh, Chris I want you to, to give us a little background on something else going on this weekend which is the SEC anniversary weekend tell us about this and uh, and what it means for the Gators especially some Gator great teams from the past a couple of years ago, the University Athletic Association decided it was going to it would honor past SEC champions on anniversaries of 10 years, 25 years and 50 years. Um, you know, they have them back for a weekend, do a reception for these uh, all sports, not just football. Mm -hmm. They have them back for a football weekend and, and again, uh, you know, treat them to some stuff and then have them uh, wave to the crowd or take a bow during the football game at some time. Well, they, uh, they lost a year of that last year with COVID. So this year. Um, they're having back the, the 10, the 25 and the 50, but also the, I guess uh, I'm going to do this, 11, 26 <laughs> and 51 anniversaries. There's 27 SEC championship teams wow. that will be honored. Uh, members of, of 23 of them will be on hand. And of course, mixed in the mixed in there is the 1996 
Steve Spurrier's uh, and the first uh, football national champion. Um, Danny Werfel will be here. Uh, 51 players from those from those two teams will be on hand. So uh, that's going to be kind of cool. They're doing a thing in the indoor practice facility for the football team. Um, Spurrier's going to speak there. Dan, uh, Scott Strickland's going to speak there. I will imagine a handful of players. My guess is the, the Danny, Warf- Danny Warfel and James Bates will certainly take the microphone and, mm-hmm. and do some talking there. But, um, you know, we mentioned that the, the UT-Florida rivalry was certainly in its heyday. Um, Flor- ten- the 1996, Florida was coming off that national championship, lost in Nebraska, having won three straight SEC titles. Everyone in the world picked Peyton Manning and Tennessee. Uh, Peyton Manning to win the Heisman and Tennessee to win the SEC. Um, the game was hyped forever. I remember I got I got hired by the Knoxville New Sentinel to write a story, one story a week uh, in the run up to that game because it was going to be the biggest game in the history of of, of the school at the time. And, of course, Florida went up there and uh, midway through the second quarter was leading 35 to nothing mm. and uh, went on to hold on to for a 35-29 win that wasn't quite as close as the score indicated. Tennessee, Bob Stoops' first year for six turn, turnovers in that game. Manny threw for 400 yards playing catch-up the whole time. Danny Werfel threw for, I think it was like 150, but four touchdowns and no interceptions. And we know who went on to win the Heisman Trophy. Uh, it wasn't Peyton Manning. It was Danny Werfel. And uh, so those, those, those guys will be able to uh, do some reminiscing uh, this weekend. And uh, um, Spurrier is, you know, they hand him the microphone between timeouts. And it's funny, he used to always get up and, and he doesn't like when people talk too much on podiums at banquets and stuff. He talks a little bit too much. He has a tendency to talk a little bit too much when these uh, reunion kind of when these, these teams go out there. But he's entitled to do that because the stadium does have his name on it, I think, and he'll get away with it a little more. So that should be fun. And, 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 and the fans, certainly the ones who remember those days, uh, will love seeing some of those familiar faces back on the sidelines. You know, something else cool that's happening. We don't get to talk a lot of swimming here, especially if it's not Olympic-related. Uh, this is Olympic-related. Uh, Chris, tell us about a, a, a new addition to the Gator coaching staff that people have probably heard of. Well, Florida announced Wednesday that Katie Ledecky, the uh, 11-time Olympic medalist, world champion, got so got a lot of hardware anyway, She's uh she she was obviously a, a multi multi time all American at Stanford, but uh she's going to train and be a, a train here in Gainesville and be a volunteer assistant coach for the Gators, and she's going to train alongside Bobby Fink and Kieran Smith, who uh, both were medalists. Bobby Fink, obviously one of the one of the great stories of the of the Olympics this past year with those incredible comebacks in those distance uh, races to win gold. Um, she's a distance swimmer. Uh, she's going to train alongside of them and she's going to get ready for the 24 Olympic games in Paris. Um, and I believe that, uh, Anthony Nesty, the UF women's coach has a good chance to be the head coach of that Olympic swim team. So she's going to be here. And, um, I mean, uh, social media was all a buzz about it and, you know, just calling it like it is, I, that's a pretty significant, um, announcement for the, for the swim program and obviously on the recruiting trail, the Florida women have not won an SEC since 2009. I believe they did win the NCAA title in 2010, um, but which I think will be one of the teams that will be celebrated uh, this weekend. But um, wow, I mean, Katie Ledecky here, a couple of weeks ago, I was at Spurrier's restaurant 
and I saw her uh, in having having dinner with uh, Bobby Fink and Kieran Smith. And little do we know, one thing led to another, where she was probably here, kind of dipping her toe in the water, not to yeah. uh, for the you know, pardon the pun, but uh, and figuring some stuff out. But um, she's going to be on the deck at the O'Connell Center, and that's a that's a big deal for the swimming program. I want to turn our attention now to our PAT which was inspired by Scott Carter. Gator Scott had this for us. And I said, I said, Scott, I'm not really sure. Nothing's really hitting me this week. And he said, what if we talk about the best environments that we've ever been in? Obviously, a takeoff of the number of people that said Florida, Alabama this past weekend was at a level that maybe no one had ever experienced before. Uh, if you ask certain beat writers, I saw. So uh, I'll, I'll tee that up for you guys. It doesn't have to be Florida-related. I mean, really, any environment you've been in for a game where even today you're still, you can still remember, you can still feel what it was like, or in, in some sense, hear what it was like on that particular day. Well, I mean, since it is inspired by what we saw Saturday at the Swamp, and you're right, I did see some beat right. But like Chris was saying earlier, quite frankly, that used to be the Swamp every week in some ways. And I think, but this generation, and even for us who've been around, you know, we've been to every game for the last decade or more. It's you don't get those environments as much anymore. But it was a special atmosphere. It would be right at there, at the top of my list and swamp moments where that crowd was into it. I've experienced a similar situation at LSU before. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when LSU and Florida went head to head. I think it was Kyle Trask's first ever. Road start. I mean, that place was electric that night. So, in the world of college football, to me, it's the swamp is right there with LSU one and one A. There's probably more that you know I haven't been to that may be right there. Uh, but I think in terms of sports atmospheres, there's a couple that I always will remember. I mean, I still remember my first ever time covering the NHL playoffs in Montreal. I'd never been to a Canadians game. And I have, I, we, maybe we've talked about this. I don't know. But the place was, they were playing the Canadian anthem and they had all this laser lights going on and it was dark and there was fog coming up. And you're up there in the top of the, the arena and you're on those metal walkways that you see. You're mm-hmm. kind of, that's where your press seat was. Man, that place was just, it was unbelievably loud. I don't know if I've ever, because, you know, there's only 20,000 people there maybe. But it's a tighter space and it's closed. Just could not right. believe how loud it was. That was one that's always stuck out to me. And I've been had several moments back in the day covering baseball at Yankee Stadium. There was nowhere as loud in baseball as Yankee Stadium because if you look at it, like in the pictures of the old one, it was kind of like the swamp. The seats at top were kind of they just went up straight and it was kind of over the field. Yeah, very vertical. The, very vertical. It was an older stadium, obviously, like the swamp and. I mean, the noise stayed in there, and there was, you know, it wasn't as big. It was only about fifty-five or 60,000 when it was packed. But, man, I've never heard a baseball crowd like that. You know, those are just moments that stand out. And I, this is a one that probably my first one like this, and it's a totally different example because it's golf. <laughs> okay, it's golf. You can't imagine a golf crowd going crazy, right? But I still remember when I was a, a teenager, I, I was – doing this job at PGA Tour events. It was a 1986 PGA Championship in the uh, Toledo, Ohio at the Inverness Club. And it, on Sunday, it got the rain came and it, it moved it to Monday. 
And all these thousands of people came out just to really watch a couple of guys finish up Bob Tway and Greg Norman. And I was right there when the Tway sinks a shot out of the bunker, holds it, beats Norman. I've never seen a I've never seen a, that many people just go crazy at one time or running around. But now we see that in golf more. Mm. Like what was it recently? The remember Tiger Woods a couple of years ago? How all the and they came, yeah, they let him in the in the fairway yeah, on the 18, yeah. yeah. And they had another one recently, I think, with Brooks with Mickelson. I think it was, it was yeah, Mickelson, Mickelson at the, uh, was it Mickelson, was it the U.S. Open that was? Or, oh, it was, was one that, recently. PGA, PGA. PGA, I think, yeah. I th- yeah, I think it was yeah. the PGA, yeah. So I guess you see that more now as crowds have gotten bigger. But back then, that was like my first taste of it. So it just stuck with me. I mean, to Scott's point, I mean, I've, I've seen LSU at its apex. I mean, whenever before they redid the stadium, I was there in '97 when Florida was number one and one, had won 25 straight SEC games, and came in there uh, number one in the country and got upset. And that they tore the goalpost down. Tennessee, 108,000. Florida, they finally beat Florida. Tore you know, place tore the goalpost. I said, stadium shook. I was at Auburn in '93, and when Auburn was on probation, and the game wasn't on TV anywhere. Couldn't be on TV. The place was crazy. Florida went in, I think, fourth or fifth in the country, unbeaten. Auburn ends up coming back from a 10 nothing depth. It's just, just, just maniacal. I was at an L.A. Dodger-San Francisco Giants game one time. It was a regular season game, but it was in the heat of a pennant race uh, late because I was there for an NFL game. That was that was crazy. Um, what, my best NFL venue, I think, Seattle-NFC championship game. There's a reason they hang that 12 flag. Mm-hmm. In the end zone, I saw them, uh, you know, beat uh, beat the Bears, I believe, to go to the or no, beat the Panthers to go to the to go to the Super Bowl. In terms of NFL, that's that was as close to maybe like a college environment as you could have. But to this day, the craziest I think wire to wire crowd. I'll you know I'll I'll, I'll stay here. It was the '97 uh, game when Florida State came in number one. Florida had no chance to win the game. Double digits. They hadn't completed pass in weeks. And Spur did the double quarterback thing. They came out. They, Florida scored on the opening drive. Uh, very surprising against the number one defense in the country. And the the noise from the beginning of the game to the end of the game. And I've told the story. I don't know how many times I was on. I was in the north end zone under the goalposts when uh, Doug Johnson completed the 63 yard pass to Jock Cuz Green, and it sounded like a jet airplane had landed in the in the stadium. And uh, and that was before they built this, uh, the you know, increased it to it to from eighty five to ninety plus thousand or whatever. And um, that's a tribute to the swamp. That's how I remember the swamp at its apex. Those other places were tremendous environments, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll stick with this one. Just like I'm sure people who followed LSU and Auburn and the Seahawks and these other teams and stuff would have their great moments in in those own stadiums. This to me is, is I remember that as the definitive uh, swamp game. And this past weekend was really cool, um, no doubt. But those great swamp games are greater when the Gators win, <laughs> and uh, and and that day was remains, I think, uh, one of one of the great wins in in Florida football history. Certainly one of the most unexpected ones. Yeah, and the moment that always stands out to me, and it's more a moment than a game. And I, I've talked about it before, but the uh, 2006 South Carolina game, the uh, the block kick with Jarvis Moss. You talk about a jet engine landing. That's what it felt like in the swamp at that moment, just a, an explosion 
Um, and that's always the thing that sticks with me in terms but of you go, you you think you're losing the game. Right. And all of, and all of a sudden you won the game and not only you won the game, all these possibilities are just open because if that guy makes a field goal, they don't win the East. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's, no, I mean, yeah, there's no every, national championship. There's no Ohio right. state. None of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Singular moments like that always, always stand out for sure. Um, and hopefully we'll have uh, some some big moments this weekend in the Swamp that we can talk about on, on next week's show. But Florida, Tennessee, it's under the lights. Of course, FloridaGators.com has you covered from all angles. So do these guys. Check them out on Twitter, at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris, for all their content. And that will all be posted on the site as well uh, throughout the rest of the week. And, of course, uh, up to and after the game as well. So thank you guys, as always, for your expertise. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. If you've been paying attention to college football over the last few years, you've probably noticed the influx of Australian kickers and punters, with seemingly every team taking a dip down under. Florida was one of the last to join the craze, but once you find out how the pipeline was created and the way it operates, you'll likely be even more interested in this new phenomenon. Before diving into the endless list of questions you'd think to ask someone from the other side of the world, we started our conversation with Jeremy Crawshaw by establishing just how wild it was in Gainesville last weekend. It's a, it's a very big game, obviously, having number one team in the swamp. Um, it was nice to see just like driving around probably Wednesday and Thursday, already seeing people show up, um, seeing uh, gazebos and tents going up ready for tailgating. Um, just like feeling a, like kind of a buzzing atmosphere kind of building. Um, which was like the best part, you know, I, mm-hmm. I came to Florida because I wanted to, you know, be in a packed swamp, play in front of a big house. And so seeing that build up throughout the week and then getting there Saturday and just seeing everyone, you know, packing the streets was great. I loved it. So what was it like in the stadium? I mean, you, you talk about the build up and the excitement for that to then hit the crescendo of the momentum swings and the big moments of the game itself. What, I mean, was it everything you thought it would be? Was it more than you thought it would be? No, it was. It was everything and more. Um, definitely running out of the uh, tunnel and seeing everyone screaming definitely gave me goosebumps. Yeah, had to rub the arms a little bit, um, you know, just to feel it. But um, it was great. It was definitely uh, a momentum changer, you know, being at home, you know, stopping the uh, Alabama momentum. Definitely it was uh, deafening at some points and definitely left my ears hurting into Sunday. So, But a good kind of hurt, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. I loved it. I wish it was even louder. Taking your story back to the beginning, um, can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up? People can probably tell from your accent. It's not yeah. close to here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I grew up um, in a town outside of Sydney called Emu Plains, Australia. It's technically, I think, the first country town out of Sydney. So, um, you know, it's a fair way out. We do things a little different out there, but um, that's where I grew up. I grew up playing um, Australian rules football, AFL, which involves a lot of kicking. Much like a quarterback throws, we'll kick to other people, you know, on a line. Um, you know, we'll make marks and we'll kick around and we'll kick goals. So that's what basically my background of kicking. But I did play a little rugby league before that as well. So I definitely learned to tackle there. So you're going to have to help me and probably other people. What is the difference between rugby and Australian rules football? Because up until this exact moment... I kind of thought they were the same thing. They were the same thing. Yeah, classic. Everyone says that. They are. Oh, okay, good. It's not just me. It's not yeah, just no, me. Yeah, no. You play rugby. I was like, technically I did, but I did also play AFL, which is a different thing. So rugby or like a rugby league, sorry, is a variant of um, rugby. So it's like pretty much playing rugby. You just get tackled. You run up, try and score a try. Um, 
kind of like that. AFL is it's different because it's it's continuous. There's no forward passes. There's no there's no throwing of it. You know, we've got to kick the ball to each other. Um, we've got a handball, which is basically like you hold the ball in your left hand, you punch it with your right. Hmm. You're not allowed to throw it. You've got to punch it. The game is almost completely different. Um, the tempos are different. You know, the plays are different. How you score is different. So, I mean, they're pretty much two completely different things, except they use a, a similar uh, shaped ball. So how did you get introduced to football? I mean, was there, did you seek it out or was this part of the kind of the, the recruitment process from what's it pro kick Australia? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd gotten to a point in high school where um, I didn't know whether I wanted to continue with school or um, go get a trade, which is like carpentry, plumbing, get an apprenticeship. And so I kind of just like, just was on the internet looking up stuff that I thought I'd enjoy and see if I you know, could find a career that I want to get into. Um, and basically I just came across this, um, this video of Dane Roy at Houston, University of Houston, kicking a footy. I went, oh, that's pretty good. And so I looked around and I found Pro Geek Australia who sent him over there. And yeah, that sounds all right. I went to the shops, bought an American footy out of my own pocket money and uh, went to the park and just started kicking around, you know? So, I mean, like, I kind of went out, you know, tried to find it on my own and pursued it. And then I found, and then I got old enough to move down to Melbourne and join the program. What was it that, that inspired you? I mean, if I watch lots of YouTube videos, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to go do that thing necessarily. (laughs) What was it that you saw that said, oh man, this is, this could be my calling. I don't even know. I think it was just, I think it was just like, wow, that I love, that looks cool. I, I kick a ball really far too. I mean, I could do that, go to America for a couple of years, you know, live life a bit. I just went, yeah, might as well. How do, how do people in Australia view American football? Is it, does it confuse them? Is it like a source of bewilderment? How, how do people process the game there? Yeah. Um, well, we obviously watch the NFL. We watch Super Bowls. You know, it's a big okay. thing. Um, we try and be American. and We, <laughs> we like to watch the Super Bowl. Um, but you know, we know, we know the NFL, the college football, we don't, we don't know. So like when I said, oh, I really want to go play college football, my mates and, you know, everyone was just like, what's that? Like they right. thought I was going to go to some like, you know, college, like community college out in the middle of Kansas somewhere, like, you know, just grass and like, they were just like, okay, yeah, sure. Like if you want to, like, but then it was, um, you know, once they saw where I was going to like the University of Florida, they went, wow, okay, this is actually a lot bigger than we thought it was like 90,000 people showing up to a, a single game mm-hmm. that's like that's like our Super Bowl back home like nobody shows up to that kind of you know what I'm saying so it was a it was a surprise for them to see like what college football actually was compared to NFL what's the biggest attended event in Australia is it is it Australia's football is it rugby and like is it 30,000 yeah. people is it 70,000 like is there anything comparable to a a swamp like crowd there yeah, um, so the Swamp, I think we had 90,000 for Bama. And the, uh, the only thing that gets close to that is probably the AFL Grand Final, which is the Super Bowl. Um, mm-hmm. We get 100,000 packed into the MCG, the Melbourne oh, Cricket wow. Grand. It's a, it's a big stadium um, and everyone loves it. So that's probably the only like close, comparable event that we have. Hmm. So when you went and you bought the football and you, I guess you, you took it out and started kicking, like, were you coaching yourself? Like, is there, are there YouTube videos explaining how to kick a football? Did you just intuitively figure it out? Like, how did you start gaining this skill? Yeah, we, um, 
So because I'd already been kicking, you know, we know how to manipulate a ball to be able to kick it at different heights and to people and different speeds and all that. We kind of know how to kick a spiral already, but just a different kind. Um, so, I mean, I kind of knew how to, but in, in American terms, you know, in the pocket, the one, two, three step and punt, we don't usually do that. We'll have like a long run up of about 10 steps and then kick it. So like, it was definitely just the transition of, um, changing the steps, changing the tempo of it, like your hands, you know, how you play, you know, all of that. Um, I definitely didn't get it straight away. I picked up the footy when I was about 15, the American football. And so I'd been kicking by myself for about two years until I got old enough that I could join the program. So I'd already like built some habits, you know, watched videos online, just tried to like, you know, gain any knowledge I could. Mm. So when you joined the program, I'm trying to think about what is the program like? Is it like where they create K-pop stars in Korea? Like how is it just a bunch of guys trying to, to make it in American football, just like churning out? How, how does that work? Yeah, kind of. So, so uh, Pro Gig Australia, they run, you know, down in Melbourne. Um, they, they set up these kind of assessment days and you come down for a kick and our coach, Nathan Chapman and uh, John A. Smith will have a look at your attributes and your leg power and they'll be able to tell you, it's like, yeah, you'd be a good fit. Come train with us. So they'd say, oh, maybe you need to get stronger. Come back mm -hmm. in you know, six months um they they kind of take you in they they build you up they put pressure on you they you know they try and they try and simulate every environment that you're gonna you're gonna experience over here so so you you know you get used to it you get used to the pressures of being rushed um having quick get-offs um you know just having to kick a perfect ball pretty much every time so like you come over here and you're just ready to come so you knew you wanted to make this make this move and come to the states, but there's yep. especially if you're if you're in Australia, you don't really have a sense of the landscape. I mean, there's a million places you could have gone. How did you end up at Florida? How did Florida become uh, an idea for you? The way our our program works is that a, a, co a coach from a school will you know hear about an Aussie an Aussie on a team, or they'll play one, and they'll say, "Yeah, he's really good. We need to get one of those." They'll uh, ring up our coaches. And they'll, they'll just say, hey, we're looking for a punter. They'll say, what kind do you need? <laughs> so uh, we, we run a spiral kind of protection or stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? We want, oh, we want to roll out. They'll say, okay, we've got a guy. We'll get some film and we'll send it to you in a couple of days. So they'll, you know, they'll go to their guy. We have about 40 guys in our program, kind of. Um, and they'll just, you know, get some film of him kicking, doing different things. And they'll send it to the coach. The coach says yes. Or the coach says no, we want to look at something else. And that's pretty much how it works. You'll, uh, like I was, I think I was told uh, three days before I got on a phone call to uh, Florida. They said, yeah, they're looking for a young fellow who can kick big spirals and roll out. And they said, I was a, I was a young fellow who could do that. And then three days later, I was talking to Coach Mullen. Wow. That's, that's so interesting too, because in my mind, I feel like most of the Australian punters I've seen they do roll out with the, the rugby style kick. So it, in, in my mind, that was like, that was what they trained everyone to do. But you're saying that they have literally, it's, it's like a custom order for different types of, of punters. Pretty much, you know, um, some guys are really, really proficient, you know, rolling out and hitting them. And I think most of us can, because we all came from that background. So pretty much everyone can roll out with a ball like that. Um, but it's teaching the spiral, which is a little, you know, at first a bit uncomfortable for most guys to learn, but after three to four months of just doing it every day, pretty much you, you become pretty proficient. Um, 
And so you kind of have a bag of tricks and each guy can do different things and it's whether the coach likes that or wants another thing, you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. that's pretty much how it works, yeah. So when you came on your official visit, obviously this whole process seems to happen pretty quickly. Um, yep. What was it that stood out to you about the program, about Gainesville? Like, I'm just thinking if you've never been here and all of a sudden you're just dropped in Gainesville, Florida, what, yeah. what's going through your head? Well, not a lot, actually. I was just too jet lagged and kind of just, <laughs> you know, I was just you know half asleep most of the time. So <laughs> It looks but, great. I'll be here in a week. It's like- <laughs> yeah, pretty much, you know. Um, but no, it was actually Tennessee weekend, which we're coming up on. Um, I was just shown around campus and I was like, you know, this is so much different to Australia. Um, it's just those classic, like out of the movies, you got a campus, fraternities, sororities, a big stadium and a football team and just diehard fans. And I went, this is like the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. This is like exactly what I see in the movies and, you know, and I just love it. Now I'm curious what movies have shaped your vision of the American college experience? I mean, almost everything. Like, yeah. <laughs> First one that sticks to mind was like Bad Neighbors, I think it was. Just like sororities and fraternities. I didn't think they were a thing, like honestly. And oh. then I came here and they're like, oh, there's Fraternity Row. And I was like, what? That's, that's real? <laughs> like you it's see real. the big columns and I was just like, what is that? I mean, I'm, I'm dreaming. I was like, this can't be true. What was your family's reaction to this? I mean, I'm just thinking if I told my family, hey, so uh, little news, I'm moving to the other side of the world. I'm going to go play American football. I mean, it seems like that'd be a like a, a big thing to just drop all of a yeah. sudden. Yeah, it was. I first brought it to them when I first found out. So I was, I was 15, almost 16 at the time. And so I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. I might like look into it. And they said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, but they were always pushing me to, you know, go to university in Australia. So so they were always like, yeah, good, get good grades, you know, start applying to these universities, you know, Western Sydney, University of Sydney, you know, stuff like that. And I was always set on, you know, going overseas. And so I was obviously getting good grades, um, everything like that. And they always thought that I would, I would never go through with it. Um, but they supported me anyway, you know, and eventually I was just like, hey, like I'm old enough. I'm ready to move down to Melbourne. And obviously it was a bit of a bit of a shock. And they, you know, talked to me about every scenario you know but i mean yeah they they knew for a year or two that i wanted to do this and i guess they didn't i did they didn't know how big it really was until until i said to them like hey i just got an offer from university of florida like i'm going there and they Mm -hmm. looked it up and they saw it and they went wow that's crazy and then the official visit while we were there they were like yeah this is nuts like just out of this world we don't have stuff like this at all so it was a lead up, but it definitely is still a shock when we got here. How does it compare? So you're talking about going to universities potentially in Australia. Yep. What is, is it just, is the campus life different? Is the, I'm just trying to get a sense of, you're saying it's so different. Why yeah. is it so different? Uh, I, I, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about this. America is like the only, the only country kind of to do like college campus and just life like like you guys do just sororities and fraternities and everything's on campus in one place in australia if you go to university you'll have a you'll have a science campus here mm-hmm. and then two kilometers away you'll have a english campus and it, you've got to walk around the city to get to your classes it's not um all in one place and we don't have sporting teams like you guys do we'll have like club teams and like 200 people will show up to not not 90,000 so just just the whole atmosphere is different you know, we all we all come from different parts of the city to go to the university, but everyone moves in, you know, 
and just lives here. So like most things are just very different. And it was a big change for me when I first got here. In terms of keeping up with family and friends back home, how difficult is that? How do you manage that distance? And obviously the, the time yeah. is, uh, the time is very. <laughs> yeah. It's 14 hours uh, time difference from Gainesville. So I always have a set time with my parents um, to ring on like a Saturday night. So I know that if I ring them at like 10 PM at night, it's going to be 12 midday Saturday if I ring on a Friday night. So um, you, t- you just have to like know the time differences and when is a good time to call. But usually it's like we send a quick message, you know, social media. That's a great way to keep in touch. So I have some questions about, these are kind of questions that go both ways. The first question <laughs> is, what are the biggest misconceptions that Australians have about Americans? That you all like fast food in your old <laughs> country. I think when we think America, we think like, you know, the deep south, and fast food, and that's pretty much it. Like, <laughs> okay, now let's, let's flip that. What are the biggest misconceptions that Americans have about Australians that you've discovered? Uh, they're endless. We have, <laughs> we have gurus and koalas and we live in the desert and I put shrimp on the barbie. And, right. Every corner is uh, not back steakhouse, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, the, oh, Outback Steakhouse tonight for dinner. You love that, mate, don't you? And I'm just like, oh, my, this is crazy. Yeah, no, those are, those are the big ones. Um, they come to me every day with new ones. They're, oh, I was reading about something. Is that true? It's like, what? No, that's not true at all. I don't see how that is. And, like, yeah, it's just kind of funny. You know, they're all kind of naive to it. Yeah. Um, what has been the, the biggest culture shock for you of, of living in America? You, you've been here for two years now, correct? Yeah. Yeah. What, what stands out when you think about your journey, things that initially you were just like, you couldn't get through your head? Initially, it would have been two things. Initially, it would have been food and accent. Mm-hmm. So like, obviously, a big thing is accent. Um, at first, you're just like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, everyone has an American accent. And it's, and it's like in your face mm-hmm. um and then after a while you forget about it and i thought about the other day i was like no oh, you all have accents and i've just got used to it um and yeah food food's very different here it's all sweet and sugary and um it's not to say that australian food is bland but mm-hmm. it's definitely i guess more natural you could say um so i mean i'm, I'm still even getting used to it i'm trying new things fairly often mm-hmm. um but it is, it's a nice adventure, I guess, finding what I like and don't like. What are, what are some foods that were very foreign to you that you have, that you have embraced and, you, and maybe you'd even take back home and say, hey, you guys need to try this thing they, they eat over in America? Yeah. It's actually a lot of the fast food chains that huh. we don't have back home. We don't have Taco Bell or Chipotle, Chick-fil-A. Hmm. I love all of those, to be honest. But we don't have any of that back home. We just have like Macca's, which is McDonald's, Macca, <laughs> AFD, and that's about it, yeah. I, I feel like I've done a pretty good job of translating in real time, but I'm just curious, how many of the, the words and the phrases you say for things do you have to explain to people? Like I figured out Macca's is probably McDonald's, but how many things yeah. like that are there where people look at you and, and you think you're making perfect sense, but to them, there's just a, you know... The... Um, a lot. I I actually have... The way I talk is Americanized. So I will just say like things pretty straight and plain now. When I call home, it'll probably take about 10 minutes before it comes back out again. And I just start <laughs> saying things, you know, that were just habit. Um, 
But people do, when I first call them, they, they say, you sound American, you sound different. It's because I have to tone it back. If I talk like how I want to talk in the locker rooms, kids are just look at me and they're just like, what do you say? Like they just don't <laughs> understand anything I say. So like you kind of have to like tone it back. Otherwise, yeah, they're just going to be like, you're in that case. Um, a few final things for you. You talked about when you came on your visit and connecting with the specialists. I, I find every year I feel like we talk to a few of the specialists and you guys, you're, you're your own little breed, right? You're your own crew. What yeah. makes this particular group of specialists special, if you'll pardon the pun there? Yeah, this year we're particularly uh, young. So like usually we'd have a lot of uh, seniors, you know, that would just roll through and graduate and leave and they'd be the leaders. This year we have a kind of a young group. We have like uh, I think the oldest guy is is a is a fourth year senior. I can't remember exactly, but and mm-hmm. and the next guy up is a red shirt sophomore. I don't know how the years work, but um, <laughs> it's it's something like that. Yeah. It's something like that. Yeah. So like most of our guys are freshmen. You know, I'm I'm a red shirt freshman, um, and I'm one of the leaders technically because I'm the starting punter. We're just a different crew this year compared to like the other guys who've been here. They're veterans, you know. They know how to run the show. This year, we're kind of you know just figuring it out along the way, having a bit more fun than usual. Um, you know, just trying to trying to keep things light. You know, don't, you can't get bogged down in our position, otherwise you burn out. And, um, yeah, so we're just a bit of a motley crew. You mentioned it's it's a young group. You're very young in your career, so I'm not sure how much how much you've thought about this. But what does the future look like for you? Do you want to stay and go punt in the NFL? Is your goal to come here, have this experience, and go back home? What what do you what do you think about when you think big picture? Yeah, big picture at the moment is obviously you know working very hard every day to eventually get a spot on an NFL roster somewhere. It's definitely a dream. Definitely want to go play on the biggest level. Um, so at the moment that is the goal um but if that doesn't you know follow through then i'm i definitely feel like home is calling definitely got to make it back as much as i love america i uh you know home is home so what's the fraternity like among the australian punters and kickers that are here is there i mean is there like a network that you guys stay connected with i know there's other schools in the sec have them is that a thing like in in theory or is that a real real construct that exists yeah, no, it is. Um, uh, out of the first three games, every team has had an Australian punter, and I knew them all. So um, it's always fun when you get to go play someone you know. You, you know, you send them a quick message on Monday morning, and then throughout the week, you, you're chatting to them. You know, you might chuck in a little uh, trash talk in there, you know, just to spice things up. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's fun when you get to play someone that you've trained with. You get to see the result of all your hard work that you put in. You get to take a... Uh, a sweet photo together and you know just have a have a chat have a catch up before and after the game um it's always it's always just a bit more fun when you when you know someone um mm. it's just it's just nice to hear that that accent again <laughs> i'm sure yeah i'm sure it is oh, yeah. um final question for you i know a, a lot of the guys talked about after the the alabama game just the the hunger that was there that was even even greater to get back out and to you yeah. know to, to continue proving that was not that was not a fluke performance that you guys are an elite team. What's the what's it been like this week and in the locker room with the guys? Just in terms of looking forward to that next opportunity being against Tennessee in the swamp at night. All of those ingredients. Yeah, no, we we definitely we definitely saw our potential on the weekend. You know, we'd always we'd always play a little slow in the start and maybe you know just 
thought, you know, that's an easy team. We'll beat them. So it doesn't really matter. We knew that Bam was coming in the swamp. We knew we'd have a chance to beat them. We played up to our standard um, and we definitely took it to them. We almost showed them that we are better than them, you know. So I think we saw what we can actually do. And now we're saying we're going to build on top of that instead of starting again and building up to it. You know, we're going to build on top of what we already have. You know, the leaders are starting, are starting to pop up, um, take lead, um, take control, just, you know, try and put us back on that winning slate. Well, Jeremy, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for answering all of my questions that I'm sure you've been asked a million times in some form or another. Um, but, but I think Gator Nation got to know you and the people of Australia yeah. much better as a result. So thank you and good luck to you. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.